Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston North, New Zealand. Rido, welcome back to the show. Well, it's good to be back. How are you this morning, Brent? I'm, I'm very good. You've, been, you've had some leave recently and been away camping. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Enjoying the New Zealand summer. Yeah, seven people in a caravan is always fun, so that's, <laughs> that's what we're about. How large is the caravan? Not not big. It should only probably sleep three, but all seven of us can sleep, it can kind of squeeze in there if we need to. Okay. Well, today, Ian, we come, it's a bit sad really, because we come to the end of uh, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13 of our Hebrew series. What a journey it's been. It's been good, hasn't it? I've, I've really loved it. Yeah, and Hebrews is such a good book. It just kind of opens up so much for us, particularly around thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done. Mm. And there's a lot of theology in it. What have we discovered in Hebrews so far? Well, I think the the thing about Hebrews is that it brings together, it kind of ties together so many of the strands of the Old Testament um, that they're there the whole way through and they are kind of there in other New Testament books, but it really kind of highlights them significantly where some of the other books don't uh, bring them together in such in such the same way, particularly around Jesus being the high priest, be, Jesus being uh, the, the sacrificial lamb, and Jesus being the temple all at the same time. That was one. That's one of the kind of the big things there. But one of the other things that is, it's kind of pushing, which we've seen the whole time, is that God has made us holy, and that we are we are holy because Jesus is holy and has made us holy. And this idea of perfection too—that we are we are perfected in Jesus, and that perfection is being worked out through sanctification. Yeah, and there's nothing that we can do to add to that. That it has been done, and so you've got the, the great line early on in the book uh, that we can enter the throne of grace. You mm-hmm. know, kind of come before God uh, to to His throne, and it's a throne of grace that, that we have free access to that because of Jesus. In what sense, though, has this letter been written as a warning to the Hebrews? I think if we understand the context of that it's been written into, probably to a group of Jewish people, maybe within a synagogue or on the side of a synagogue, um, kind, you know, kind of thinking through, should we go back uh, to obedience to the Jewish law? And I think it's a warning to them to say, if you go back to that, then there is no hope of salvation because that will only lead to death, uh, where you need uh, to trust in Jesus because Jesus is the fulfilment of that Old Testament law. In what sense has this letter also been written as a warning, but also written as a reminder? Well, it's a reminder of who they are as God's people, that they have been, and who, who, what God has done for them, that he has perfected them, that it has been done, and that there's nothing they can add to it, and a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. How does the writer to the Hebrews draw all the themes of this letter together here in chapter 13? We've got all of the, the kind of things coming together in that he's just finally kind of coming to a conclusion, reminding them of what has been said, but then also pushes it out in a practical way as well. Mm. Okay, let's read verses 1 to 3 because we're going to do it verse by verse. There's quite a bit of it. And it, it, it's a bit, it feels sometimes a bit disconnected, this chapter, but, but it isn't. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Okay, Ian, what do verses 1 to 3 teach us then? So you've got here, you've, you've kind of got the practical conclusion to who you are as a Christian. So verse 1, you've got brotherly love. 
Uh, verse 2, you've got hospitality uh, to strangers. And then verse 3, uh, you've got kind of the, the, the suffering church, how it acts uh, in light of what's going on around it. In what sense is this a chapter about sex, money, and acceptance? Yeah, I think the whole the whole chapter kind of deals with those three things in particular. Particularly, the beginning of the chapter is dealing with those three things that you've got. Uh, as we go on, it, it's talking about kind of keeping the marriage bed bed pure. You've got um, the the love of money coming in, and then, and particularly towards the middle of the chapter, this idea of acceptance that. Who are, we going, who are we worried about in terms of accepting us mm-hmm. as human beings? Okay, verse 4, let's look at these things. Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So how does verse 4 then, uh, Rido, address the nature of sex? So I think it's upholding kind of marriage and sex as a good thing. And it's just saying, but it's, it's kind of continuing on the the theme that that runs all throughout the bible that the boundary for it is within marriage that is a good thing but within within marriage uh that that's where it's kind of best contained in a sense but in a sense that exploration and you know kind of to protect people that within marriage is the best place for it and i I think it's kind of looking outside of that that when you move beyond that you end up um kind of hurting people and hurting relationships, but also communities as well. How can sex, if used wrongly, destroy us then? Well, one, it becomes an idol because it becomes about self-fulfillment, but it also becomes, uh, when, when you uh, use sex wrongly, you, you end up destroying other people because you only see them for what you can get out of them. Uh, and so that's what it, what it does. And it's just so powerful that what it ends up doing is it breaks relationships, it breaks the closeness that that you know kind of happens, uh, particularly in marriages, and then you kind of you know destroying not only relationships, you're destroying whole communities around that. And I guess sex has become a bit of an idol in in recent decades, hasn't it? And is portrayed as such in the media. Yeah, I don't think that's a necessarily a new thing. You know, kind of, I think there's lots of cultures have done that, uh, but there is definitely a sense in our culture that either if you're not having sex or if you're kind of constrained by marriage or whatever it is, then you're not fulfilled as a person. And But kind of in, in any culture, what happens is you end up being enslaved to sex in that way if you're not kind of... Um, if you're seeing that you, there is fulfilment outside of, you know, kind of being a human being, that you're not really a human being uh, unless you're kind of in a sexual relationship, that actually that's not true, that fulfilment is found outside of that. Okay, well, that's X. X, come and talk about, about money, verses 5 to 6. Keep your life free from love of money, writes the writer to the Hebrews, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Okay, in what ways can money then divert our attention from Jesus in verse 5? Well, again, it becomes an idol as well because we think that it will bring us security. So that's what Jesus uh, is offering us, is true security. But we think that financial kind of security, which people often talk about, is our real saviour. And so I think there's a real danger that it diverts our eyes away from Jesus because we think that security can be found in financial security. How are we all deceived by money then? Well, in that same way, I think we... 
<clears throat> we're all deceived because we we think that it can that if I've got money in the bank, then uh, it it means security for me as a human being, and that you know kind of I can plan the future and and I can um, you know I, I know what's going to happen in retirement and all those types of things. It will it will bring me satisfaction. But what I, what I found is that financial security actually just brings more insecurity because then I've got this money and maybe it'll be taken away from me and then I'll have nothing left. Uh, that it actually does the opposite often, yeah, is the case. Mm. How do verses 5 and 6 then speak of contentment? It's an interesting word, isn't it? That uh, It crops up too when Paul uses it in, uh, in 1 Timothy, is it? Contentment, chapter 6, I think. Yeah, it's interesting here, isn't it, that that it, there's the, the movement from keeping your life free from money to what to contentment with what you have. Uh, and I think there's a definite sense that it is understanding that God is the one that provides all things. And so that it's from God's hand that everything comes. And if we're thankful for, for what we give, uh, for what we get, uh, then there's a sense that we can be content with what we have. We don't look to others in you know, kind of envy for what they have or jealousy, but we are content with what has, God has given us. Mm. Verses 7 to 10. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Well, this is the part of the letter that gets a bit knotty, Rito. I never, I always struggle to understand these these verses. What do verses seven to ten contribute to the argument then? Yeah, it it is a bit knotty, isn't it? In that mm. you kind of you've got a few verses there, four verses which seem to be kind of talking about different things. It, you know, each one of them. It is quite an odd. A kind of a kind of set of verses you've got together there. But what have you got? You've got in the first one. Look to your leaders. Uh, consider their way. So in a sense that it's as uh, the leaders are following Jesus, uh, you also you know kind of they should be pointing you to Jesus. In verse eight, that Jesus is not different. He doesn't change. Uh, then verse nine, don't be led away by different teachings, uh, but kind of. Listen to what I've said, basically, is what, not me, but the, what, the, what the writer of Hebrews has said. Uh, and then 10, again, we, we're referring, kind of going back again uh, to um, the, the Old Testament law. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. You've kind of got all these bits together. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. There's got to be a way through these. How, how should we, coming back to the leaders, Rita, that's yep. you, oh. how should we remember our leaders there in verse 7? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? It, I think I think it's respect, you know, kind of respect them. Uh, it doesn't mean that everything they say is right, but I think it's to have respect for them because they are speaking, hopefully, they're opening God's word to you and speaking it to you. And so you need to respect them because they, they're trying to do their best in in helping us understand what God has, has to say through his word. Mm. What is the writer warning against, though, in verses 9 to 10? Well, this is the the big problem, particularly in the early church, is that because things around who Jesus is uh, in terms of the doctrine, it's still kind of being discussed and the apostles are kind of working it out and the early church is working it out. How do we actually understand who Jesus is? Was he fully man? Was he fully God? All, all of these types of things are still being worked out. And um, But it would be easy for someone to come in from a different kind of church or a different with a different kind of understanding and speak against what the apostles have been speaking. 
And so it's kind of saying, hey, just be careful about that kind of stuff. Don't, don't kind of run off in those directions, but be careful and come back to what you've been taught, what you know. What's the reference to food there all about? Is this something to do with food laws? I don't know. It's my, it's my answer. Yeah, what mm. do you think? I don't know. I'm wondering whether this is the debate that they're having in Corinthians with the, with the food sacrifice to idols or something like that. Yeah, I have the same thought as well, mm. that maybe, maybe it is talking about that, because you do have the altar kind of being mentioned there. Yes, they start talking about altars, and then we get into the sacrificial system. So, yeah, yeah it's quite hard to tease out the flow of thought. What is verse 10? So we have an altar from which... Those who serve the tent and have, have no, no right, right to eat. eat. Okay, yes. Don't know. I'm sure it's an Old Testament reference, but I don't know exactly where or what. Mm. Okay. Well, let's come and look on uh, and read the next bit. So we continue. Sorry, with the f- no help on that. No, that's all right. <laughs> I, I look. I'm. I'm. I've always puzzled about this passage. Um, being honest about it. So verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Okay, well, uh, in what ways are verses 11 to 14, you spoke about acceptance. In what ways are verses 11 to 14 about acceptance? You've got this whole section here about where bodies were burnt and where Jesus was sacrificed and all these types of things. But the idea was that it was outside of the city. And so it wasn't in the temple area. Uh, It wasn't kind of where the, you know, kind of in, in a special place. Outside of the city was where the garbage was. And so all the garbage, all the refuse, all the excrement was put outside of the city and it was burnt. That's the idea here, that he was burnt in a defiled place, a place that you wouldn't want to go. In what ways do we live, though, for a different city or a different reality? Well, this is what we saw in chapter 11, wasn't it, when we looked through uh, the, the, the cloud of witnesses, of course, calls it, and that all of these people were looking for a different city, one with that with firm foundations. And here we have that same truth being told, that the city that that is on earth, or the cities around us, they are not actually built on firm foundation. They're not really built uh, kind of in the in the bedrock that they they will at some point pass away. But we're looking for a greater city, and that that city at the moment. Is kind of we can't see it obviously, but there's a deeper reality. We're waiting for that to happen, and that's the the, the picture we get in Revelation 21 of that city descending from the heavens as it comes down and establishes itself on earth. And this has been the alternate reality that uh, the writer to the Hebrews has been on about right through right through the whole letter, really. And thinking back to our discussion on chapter 11. Mm, yeah, definitely. Mm. Okay, verses 15 to 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What then... Ian, are the two sacrifices we're told to make here? You've got a sacrifice of praise, firstly, in verse 15. So it's actually the the speaking out, um, kind of God's praises. And I think that that in in part that's a recognition of who God is, that we are not our own rulers, but that that God is the ruler. Uh, And then secondly, it's the doing good and sharing with what you have. Kind of That's the second sacrifice. It's kind of these two things. It's word and deed, we might say. 
How on earth is doing good a sacrifice? Well, it is because I have to give up myself, don't I? I have to give up what I do, you know, kind of my own selfishness. I have to give up uh, kind of my own, you know, self-interest and look to others and their own, their kind of self, you know, kind of what they need rather than my own. Okay, so that's what he means by the sacrifice of praise and sacrifice of doing good. Verses 17 to 19, uh, here we go, Rito. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honourably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Why are we exhorted to obey our leaders there in verse 17? This seems very authoritarian language to us in the 21st century. Well, and it could be, and it has been used that way, hasn't it, mm. um, in the past, that that you need to be obedient to your leaders. It's not saying you can't question them. It's not saying that at all. But it is, it's saying that you need to respect them again, I think. Um, and people have you know, pointed to this and say, you need, to, you need to submit to me because of this verse, right? That's not what it's saying. It's saying that, look, the, the kind of, the verse 17 at the beginning there, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You know, that, that's a high, you know, kind of responsibility there, isn't it? Of, of keeping watch over your souls. And they will have to give an account. So they have a, and this is the thing that we, we forget, is that kind of responsibility you know, comes, should come with respect, but often we don't kind of put those things together. And in fact, a leader should, I think, a leader should never have to say, you need to submit to me. They're, by their example, they should show that they're someone worthy of submission to. Mm. So leading by example, not what I say, but what I do. Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly, which is often opposite to what, what we think in the world. Um, I, well, a question for you, mm-hmm. Brent. The, the uh, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Do you think that's a command to leaders that they they have to do? It, you better do it with joy, or else you know you kind of. Or is it, it should be a joy? You know, you but, but, of, uh, I shouldn't say it's a bit like the German command. You, you will be joyful. Yes. Um, there, you don't have much freedom in the matter. I, I, I think there's a lot of church leaders who are groaning with uh, with difficult congregations and difficult people. And I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, my heart is burdened by the church leaders who seem to be groaning because they're overworked and overstressed. And uh, I, I think we need to get back to what, what the writer's saying here. Yeah. Do you think they, they should find my joy or should it just be easy, an easier job? <laughs> a bit of both. Uh, I think they're, they're not going to have any joy if they've got a, a, a pack of people that aren't really uh, are just disrespecting them. I mean, we've seen that recently uh, in, in the last couple of days. I have uh, a leader being completely disrespected and rubbished, and uh, it's really hurt. It's really hurt that person, mm. and it's it's going to affect their joy. I mean, you know, even though you try, I mean, you're in church leadership. I have been in, in church leadership. You know that you are joyful. It's a joyful job. It it, it fills you with joy to uh, to uh, obey God and serve Him. But if you have a lot of kickback and if you have a lot of constant opposition, it undermines that sense of joy and vocation, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When someone comes and tells you that you're wrong or that you kind of <laughs> are you know, saved? Yeah. Well, I've <laughs> had that a number of You've times. You've had that. I've had that. You've number had of times. that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of after a sermon, you know. Someone comes and asks you, they're not sure if you're saved. Yeah, it's kind of, it doesn't leave you in a great space as a leader. No, no, that's right. And, and the, I think, I think um, 
my my perception of the of the, a lot of the church or some of the church in New Zealand is I think we have a real problem with not disobedience but disrespect mm. for for whatever reason and I think that's a real shame. Anyway, uh, where are we up to? Digression verses twenty to twenty one. Uh, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you say this is a doxology. What, what is a doxology, Rito? So doxo- doxology just means it's a... A kind of a concentrated praise, we might say. It's kind of a, a concentrated uh, opportunity to really distill down who God is and for us to kind of recognise that. And so it, it kind of comes from doxus, which which means, sorry for bringing some Greek here, but doxus means... Please means, do. ...means to glorify or to praise or to... Uh, kind of, actually, it kind of means light as well. Um, and then logos, which is word or study of. And so you've got those two words being smushed here together, meaning it's kind of a study of praise or a study of God's glory. Mm. Uh, I think you've answered my next question. How is this a study of God's glory? What does it say about God? Well, it really is distilled down mo- most of what's in Hebrews, and it's really mm. it's a distillation of all of those good things. But notice that it's kind of Godward focused and not us focused and so now and kind of distilling all of these things about who God is he's called the God of peace he's brought back Jesus from the dead uh, who, who then and then it then looks at Jesus he's the great shepherd uh, and then the only thing that talks about us is that God might equip us to do every good work but for what reason that we may do his will so then it kind of quickly shifts back to God again mm. <clears throat> how, how are these two verses a summary then of the whole letter Look at the thing, look at all the things there. You've got God being the God of peace. You've got Jesus being the great shepherd, uh, all you know, and by the blood of His covenant, the eternal covenant. You've got all those things that we've been talking about for the last, you know, nearly thirteen chapters, all kind of coming together in this one little thing, this one little doxology. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? How he ends. And how is verse twenty-one a, dist- a distillation of all that Hebrews has been saying? Well, it's showing us the purpose of what God is doing. Verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us with that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That this is what God wants you to to be. This is what his will is for your life, is to be like him because you are now perfected. And so go and live that perfected life. It's not saying that you are, are now a perfect person, but that you have been perfected to do what? To do God's will and it's pleasing to God. How are we exhorted to fix our eyes on Jesus there in verse 21? Yeah, and this is the, um, the, the thing that, you know, kind of those verbs that keep coming up in Hebrews. And one of those ones was fix our eyes on Jesus. And look, look at what it says, working um, in us that which is pleasing in his sight. It's almost like God is looking at us, but what are we doing? We are fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because when we fix our eyes on something, that is what we head towards. Mm. Okay, we come to the last uh, three verses of the letter, verses 22 to 20, sorry, the last four verses, 22 to 25. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
Well, if that's brief, I, know. <laughs> I wouldn't have liked to have got a long letter from this person. It's like in, uh, is it 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, finally, then he goes on for another two and a half he chapters does, yes, or something. Right, yes, I love him. I just think he's brilliant, oh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, for I've written to you briefly, verse 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you. Timothy presumably has been in prison. Sounds like it, mm, doesn't mm. it? Uh, has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So are these people in Italy then that he's writing to? Mm. Grace be with all of you. Okay, so how, how does it all end? How does he wrap it all up? Well, it's kind of just a, a final, just, you know, it's a, just a nice little friendly kind of ending there, isn't it? It's very personal. Uh, where there has been some deep theology going on. It does kind of land in a very personal kind of way. And it does show that it's not it's connected to relationships, I think, which is really important. These are people that he knows that he's writing to and, and there are connections and friendships and extended uh, friendships and families involved too. So how then, as we come to the close of Hebrews, Ian, how do we sum up this whole massive, amazing letter? Well, it has, to, it has to, at its very core, has to have, do something with Jesus, doesn't it? The whole thing is about Jesus and that Jesus is the fulfilment uh, of God's plan of salvation. All of the Old Testament comes to a head in him uh, and we are now put our eyes on him because that who we're being made into and our hope is in him for the future as well. Mm. And what can we take away? What, what sort of confidence can we take away from having read this letter, Ian? Yeah, that's one of the things we, we've constantly brought up is the confidence that we can have, the assurance, yes, assurance. that yes. we can have, and complete assurance, but not in our faith, but in Jesus' faithfulness in what he has achieved. And I think that's a really important thing, is that my faith goes up and down, you know, when someone says to me after a sermon, I don't think you're saved, you know, that's a point where, you know, quite a low point in my, kind of my trust in myself. What did you say in that sermon? Do you remember? Oh, it was, I, no, I don't know. <laughs> it was just a psalm. It was, yeah. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> it, was, it was nothing controversial or anything. It was just, it was just I was just preaching a psalm. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, you don't, you don't kind of... Yeah, my faith. There are points where your faith goes up and down, but it's it's that's not what is important, and that's the assurance that we have that it's the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of Jesus. Has He actually achieved what He set out to achieve? And God has definitely done that through Jesus. Mm -hmm. And and indeed, assurance of salvation. We know that we can't lose that. That's been another major theme of the letter that we've dealt with. Can't be lost. Mm. Once God has brought you home, once He has perfected you, uh, He will continue on that that mm. good work. All right. The Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you. And uh, that brings us to the end. I don't know how many podcasts we've done on Hebrews, Ian. It's been quite a few. I can't remember. I, ca I can't remember. I haven't been counting. enough. It's enough. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been counting them, but we hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, the next time we meet, we're going to be opening the Gospel of Mark together, which I'm excited about because I've been prepping uh, your sermons and going through the theology of chapter one of Mark, and it's it's fabulous stuff. Mark's good, isn't it? It's oh, such a good gospel. Oh, it's sensational. So uh, we look forward to um, you, us, you joining us again. Thank you so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
facebook.com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.